you, Fred. Okay, so we're in the book of Isaiah. What is going on, just in a general sense? And why is Isaiah commissioned to be a prophet? And what is his basic message? What is going on now, just in a general summary? What's, what's happening here? Okay, and now he is, he is predominantly speaking to what's known as the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Of course, that's where Jerusalem is. But he also is going to allude to the northern kingdom. That's Samaria, often referred to as Ephraim or Israel. That's the northern. You've got the north and the south. But he's focusing on the southern kingdom. But as you say, Marcia, they're drifting. In what sense are they drifting? Away from God. Okay, are they religious? They're very religious, but they're not righteous. Okay, this will be a common theme. We're going to see that runs through this. They're extremely religious. It says they're keeping the feast days, the festivals, um, the temple. All of these things are kind of moving along. But then it says, but you've done this. You, 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 uh, you're uh, in terms of idolatry and immorality, and you're importing uh, false gods and all this. So Isaiah is there to basically, it's a warning, but it's also a pronouncement. And we're going to see that. The woes are coming. There's a judgment coming. He's prophesying roughly about the year seven. 730, he, he spans four major kings, we looked at that. Uh, but uh, the, shortly, Assyria is going to come down and gobble up the northern kingdom. But about 150 years later, Babylon, which isn't even a major power at the time he starts his prophet, prophecy, is going to come down and take the southern kingdom. That's the famous Babylonian, they destroy the temple and all that. Okay, so that establishes that. That, anyone else, anything to add to any of this that we just discussed? Let's just kind of fly over it. Yes, please. These guys in the temple do their job because if you look at Deuteronomy 18, they have a very clear job description that they're not following. In terms of the false belief systems. Right. Yeah, because what is Deuteronomy, what's some of the things it forbids? False gods. Uh, false gods, witchcraft, sorcery, divination. It goes on a whole list. Basically, like today's psychics, uh, horoscope, astrology, all of that is, is cataloged in Deuteronomy 18, and they're importing that. And again, Israel was supposed to be that city set on a hill that other nations would come to to inquire of the Lord. You know, the way of the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what, what, it was actually reversed. Instead of being influential spiritually, they were being influenced by false religious systems. That's kind of where we're at today. Anyone else on anything? Just by. Okay, so we're going to jump from chapter 4 because that has in verse 2 the branch of the Lord, and that's a whole separate study uh, in Isaiah and other old re referencing Jesus Christ, and we're going to do that. But I want to get to chapter 5. This, this lesson, um, all the lessons, I mean, the, the book of Isaiah is just in many ways different than the other prophetic books because one, it's most referenced in the New Testament. It is the one that Jesus opens his ministry when he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, unrolls the scroll, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And his ministry, in a sense, closes with Isaiah 53 as one as a lamb led to the slaughter. So it's just so many quote Isaiah. It's just incredible. And the other thing, of course, it's one of the longest prophetic books. But chapter 5 in this parable of the vineyard uh, is extremely, extremely important. Now, when I teach Old Testament, I basically have three goals that I like to do. There's many teachers 
that do it differently. But what I do is I try to find context. What's going on at this time in this particular situation? Kind of like a reporter, who, when, why, where, how. Is God dealing with Israel? Are they in a, um, obedience? Is there rebellion? Is he giving them commandments? Is, is there a war going on? What's going on? That's, that's just set in context. Then we look for, how does this apply to Jesus? Jesus says, search the scriptures, for they testify of me. He says, all the prophets wrote of me. So is Jesus anywhere contained in what we're going to study today? And finally, bringing it fast forward, does it have application for us this very day? And we're going to see this chapter 5 does, big time. And so um, we'll get into this. But this goes into the famous, what's known as uh, the parable of the vineyard. Now, just by way of trivia, how many have studied much of Bay Village history? Uh, I was doing a little study on this. Uh, many of the present-day neighborhoods of Bay Village were apple orchards, peach orchards, and vineyards. In the Lakeshore days, streets' names were like Vineland and Woodland. Uh, from old diaries, this is from Lydia Calhoun. She talks about her grandfather. He's a miller. But it says, when they came here, uh, part of the land is planted as a grape vineyard. The year is 1953. This German couple settles on the west side of Cleveland. Then they come over here. They want to grow grapes is their deal. So Regina followed her husband, Henry, with his dream, and they purchased 50 acres of land along the south shore of Lake Erie in Dover Township. What is Dover Township? Bay Village. Okay. And they raised grapes, and they have a winery. So what I'm saying is, as we study the parable of the vineyard, we could actually have been sitting in a vineyard if we were here 175 years ago. I'm not saying we are, but I like the connection. <laughs> Little trivia. Okay. So let's look at chapter 5. And uh, only because I have the, this, I'll read aloud. Okay, he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard, a very fruitful hill. He has dug it up, he's cleared out the stones, he's planted it with choice wine. He built in a tower in its midst. Also he made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. Now, Here's just an artist's picture of some of the things that are listed there. You see, uh, they're working the fields. What is this for? Watchtower. That's a tower to watch out for animals, watch out for thieves coming in. It suggests it's permanent. This is not sharecropping or something. This is a permanent thing, this vineyard, this particular vineyard. How about here? That's the wine press. Remember, in Israel, we actually saw the one in Nazareth. If you remember, it's, it's etched into the ground with a little funnel where you can see where they stepped the grapes and then funneled into the uh, vat. Uh, and you see a wall, you see a wall. All these things, and you can tell it's well uh, irrigated and fertilized because it's bringing forth all of these things. So what's some of the things, we're gonna see in a minute, the vineyard is what? what in, this, in this parable, the vineyard is what? Yeah, look at verse seven, if you're in doubt. The house of Israel, the vineyard. So there's no confusion or ambiguity. You'll often see Israel referred to as a vine or a vineyard. It says this in Jeremiah 2. I had planted you like a choice vine of a sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Okay, he, God had established that. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. The idea being that once it was... It was fruitful, it was beautiful, it was flourishing. And, and uh, then he says, uh, Israel was a spreading vine, he brought forth fruit for himself. 
As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. What, what's, what's the vineyard? What's the people of the vineyard? What's Israel doing when he references they're building altars, they're decorating stones? What are they doing? Idolatry. Idolatry. Remember the high places, the altars, to Baal, to all these different gods. Therefore, God says, what? Their heart is deceitful. I will now, I must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred places. So you'll see this idea of fruitfulness, prosperity, protection, and then all of a sudden they drift, they turn their backs on God, and you see the wrath of God falls down. Any thoughts on any of this? Uh, I thought somebody had their hand up. Okay, so we're, you see this happening very clearly if we turn to uh, Psalm 80. I'm just kind of establishing the whole vineyard uh, concept foundationally here. And if somebody could read um, Psalm 80, verse 8 through, through 13, please. Psalm 80, verse 8 through 13. Thank you, thank you, Kathleen. So do you see, you get the picture again. Going back to chapter 5 of, of uh, Isaiah, what's some of the things God did to ensure success or fruitfulness that, uh, in that particular parable? In the, uh, it's fertile. Uh, it, it is, it's a fertile ground. It, it's, it's, a, it's the promised land, okay, milk and honey. What else did he do? He built a tower. He's protecting it. If, if God is not their, their watchtower, if God is not their a protector as well as their provider, Israel is finished because they're just not a big nation. They're not a militarized nation. They're none of these things like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. What else does he do? It's, it's, a, it's a choice piece of land. He, did, he has a tower. What else does it say? In, in, it's choice. He's got the best. He's got the very best, okay? And then he does... He hedges it, which suggests what? Protection. Protection. There's a protected, you know, a hedge around about it. And then he, pardon me, he clears stones. Now remember Jesus, the parable of the seed and the sower, the seed that landed on the stony ground, what happened? It can't take root, it can't penetrate. So he's using these kind of things. This is all to suggest, does God want them to be successful? Does he want them to be prosperous? Does he want them to succeed and be the people he's called them to be? Yes. He's in a sense stacked their deck in their favor. Do you see what I'm saying? He's really, he says, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. And therefore, as a result of that, God is looking for return on investment. investment. What's that in marketing? ROI, ROI, return on investment. Study the parables. God is looking for return on investment that Jesus gives, you know. He gives the steward, you know, 10 talents and five talents. He's looking for return. We're gonna see how this applies to our lives in a minute, but he says, he makes a wine press, which indicates he's looking for good wine to come from this, this uh, vineyard. Uh, I expected it would bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Does anybody have a different word for the wild grapes? 
what is it? Bad, sour, bad, sour uh, worthless. Yeah, yeah, all of these things, it's very negative uh, connotation. Now he asks a question. It's almost like a judge asking the play, the, here. He says, now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, you judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? You see what the Lord is saying here? What more can I do for you to ensure spiritual righteousness? Be my people. Be that separated people I've called unto myself. What more could I have done? In other words, it's like God saying, I stack the deck in your favor. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. God gives Adam and Eve all of these trees, right? Including the tree of life. Right. Now, we don't know how many trees that was because that's pre-fall. But I imagine it probably looked like a Maui of steroids on a really good day. You know, just fruit trees and this tree and that tree and the tree of life. How many does he prohibit? One. Did God stack the deck, so to speak, in Adam and Eve's direction? Yes. Yes. This is very important when we drive it forward to 2018 to ask, has God stacked the deck in mankind's favor to have a relationship with him? We'll look at this in a second. Any thoughts on this? I'm trying to get like a small group kind of a feel for this. <laughs> so uh, if we get discussion or interrupt me, please do. You know, think comments. Yes, please. Ben. When I was trying to teach the neighborhood boys about the Garden of Eden, they kind of had this glassed over look. And I said, all right, look, it'd be like you can go to my refrigerator and you can eat anything out of it except that one jar of pickles. Okay. And to this day, anytime I bring up the Garden of Eden, they're like, yeah, don't eat the pickles. That's good, okay. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good metaphor, okay. And several of those young men came to Christ. Yeah. Just no, six months ago, right? Yeah. Okay. So he's saying this basically in a, in a, not a judge kind of way, but he's saying, what more can I do uh, for you? And of course, we know that they're, they rebel, they turn their back on God. So here's the result. There's the consequence when we get to verse 4. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, he asked this question again. It's rhetorical. And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Now he told the good stuff. Now he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I will take away the hedge and it shall be burned. Now, we know what's going to happen when the Assyrians come down. There's no protective walls. There's nothing they can do to resist that kind of a military might. There's no more. God lifts his protective hand here. It shall be burned. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. That's especially true when Babylon invades uh, the southern kingdom, and they destroy the Temple Mount. Destroy it completely. Okay? Uh, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. There shall come up briars and thorns. Interesting. After Adam and Eve sinned, what now came into the creative order? Briars. Thorns. Thistles. A new kind of thing seemingly comes into nature of the creative. And what was Jesus crowned with, of course? Thorns. Thorns and thistles often represented of a, of a, a ground that has been just, uh, judged, parched, no, nothing fruitful come out, just these kind of harmful things. He says... Now, this is where these vine and this vineyard used to come up. And it says, um, I will lay it waste. It shall 
not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they uh, rain no more rain on it. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, behold, a cry for help. And then he starts what's known as the six woes. We won't get into all of these today, but he says, number, verse one, woe to those who join houses to houses, they add field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. What's wrong with that? Why, why is that a point of judgment? What are they doing here? They're doing something. Pardon me? Okay, who said it? Kathleen. They're crowding out the little guy, so to speak, because land in Israel, even in countries today, is, is precious because it belonged to the family. That would pass it down to the children. That would pass it down. And what you're getting here is landowners are coming in, joining their house to house, and God is really against here is injustice. He'll say that several times. He'll say you join land to land, uh, where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In other words, like a big mansion and you're taking all the land, like maybe you got sharecroppers way out of the edges, but here's what you're doing. In verse nine, in my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitants. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. Uh, the homer and the seed shall yield one bath. He's saying now that fruitfulness is gone. Judgment is now coming. Then he says, well, Verse 11 and 12, if somebody could read that, please. And tell me what this judgment is about. Okay, what's going on here? What what you said? What did you say? Party. Party. Yeah, Party. intoxicants. You know, or they were vineyard. There's not a prohibition against the drink, but but they're abusing all this stuff. Now the intoxicants are coming. They're doing it from morning till night, and they want music. They want, like Michael says, it's a party. It's gone into debauchery now. Very interesting when a culture starts going south, the level of intoxicant use rises. Uh, this is this is interesting. This was from uh, Friday's USA News and World Report. Some of you might be aware of this. In the past 10 years, U.S. life expectancy drops again as more Americans are dying from what? Drug and alcohol usage. You know, intoxicants, intoxicants, intoxicants. Why? Because as a culture, we're losing our moral center of gravity. You know, kind of if if it feels good, do it. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. Yeah, you see, the problem with it, what happens in Las Vegas doesn't always stay in Las Vegas, okay? It follows us, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Any comment on this? But do you see how, how our Lord is, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, is being very uh, specific. He's really itemizing, and we're going to see these woes will continue. Um, and then, of course, we get to chapter 6, he gets this great vision. It's a, it's a culture that was a people that were supposed to be spiritual and they abandoned their roots. They abandoned their roots. When they came in, they essentially, at, at a time, they had seasons where they were very spiritual people. Uh, and then and they sought the Lord and they had the temple and they, they, were, they had a fear of God. 
and they were sharing the good news. But now you're reaching this point, and again, Northern Kingdom, within 20 years of this prophecy, they're gone. 120, 150 years, Southern Kingdom, gone, Babylonian gone. Now, this idea of vineyard we're going to see is used a lot in the scriptures. I just, we just looked at a couple places where you see this used of Israel. Now, let's turn. What I want to do here is, is pull this thing fast forward. We're here, and, and he's, this is his span. It's like 730 to maybe 8, uh, 640, uh, roughly. Uh, that's, remember, he's in the four kings. He's, he's, a, he's a, a prophet within the span of four reigns of four kings. And then we're going to like to fast forward to the time of Christ and to see this whole vineyard thing in application at the time of our Lord, and then fast forward that 2,000 years to see how the vineyard has application in our life. Try to do that. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 21 for a moment. Matthew chapter 21. Now, this, this, all the chapters are extremely important, but this one is important for several reasons. Number one, it, it, it starts with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which basically, I mean, we call Palm Sunday, but it's the start of what's known as the Passion Week, you know, and he comes in, and, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and remember, at that time, that is the one time in the ministry of Jesus, he fully allows himself to be received as the Son of God, as, as the Messiah, you understand, the, at that time, because when you study the Gospels, sometimes when he heals a blind man, or he does a miracle, what does he tell the person? Don't, don't tell him. What does the person often do? Right. What has God told us to do? Go tell. What do we often do? Don't tell. Okay. <laughs> but what I get at is, <laughs> but it's this idea here, he's coming in, fulfilling prophetic, uh, the prophecies about uh, Psalm 118 and other places. And, he's, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders say, tell them to be silent. Tell your followers to be silent. And Jesus says what? If, if they are silent, even the stones will cry out. Because it was the moment. Nature itself, you know. Uh, whenever I go to Jerusalem, I always gather some stones. I, I think you're allowed to do that. But around Jerusalem. <laughs> and I bring them home. And I, I have them on my desk and I give them to my friends. I said, may this always be a reminder to us. You don't want to get to heaven and find out a stone praised the Lord more than you did. Or I did. They go, okay, I'll remember that. But it's this idea, he's coming in here, but he's pronouncing judgment uh, in, a, in a big way. Number one, he cleanses the temple in verse 12. And he's quoting scripture, of course. In verse 13, he'll say, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then he comes down, and that's where they, it says, verse 15, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw it, the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you not heard out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, I have perfected praise. In other words, children literally were in the temple region crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he goes and curses the fig tree. And we won't get into that this morning, but the, it's, it's a type of pronouncement of judgment in an object format, if you will. They come to him in verse 23, and they're questioning authority. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority 
Are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? See, everything is about authority. You know, everybody in this world lives under some authority. You know, if, when I teach worldview or different religions to new missionaries, I said, look, every person ever comes into this world usually struggles with four major questions. There's more, but uh, in religions and philosophies develop around these four questions. Number one is origin. How did this whole thing come about? Number two is meaning. Does life have purpose or meaning? Three is morality. Is it right to do this? Is it wrong to do that? And four is destiny. What happens after I die? And they're all based on a source of authority. It could be the Quran, it could be the Bhagavad Gita, it could be the Book of Dianetics, it could be, you name it, the Bible, okay? Is there anything that makes this, our source of authority, true and theirs not true? Yes, we'll cover that, we've started that as we've progressed. And that's not being critical of others. My, my goal is be analytical, don't be critical of other people's belief system because it says to do that with reverence and respect for the other person's faith, religion. But ours is different because of the prophet. One of the reasons is prophetic fulfillment. You know, all the way through, we see this idea. And that's why they want to know about Jesus. What authority are you doing this? Well, the problem is we're living in a time and age when people want no authority over them. But see, what authority are they under then? If somebody says, I have no religion, I have no faith, I don't, what, what, who is their authority? Themselves. That's why the Bible says, lean not on your own understanding. It also says, there's a way that seemeth right unto man. The end thereof is destruction. That, that's a, a big thing that's going on in our culture today. Is there, there's, They're not necessarily angry at religions. They're just none. N-O-N. They're just, you know, functional atheists, but basically agnostic. But their source of authority is themselves. You understand this principle? Jesus is going to say, my source of authority comes from my Father above, but it's also validated by the word that I'm fulfilling right before your eyes. Does that make sense? Does anybody have a thought on this? Yes, please. children decide for themselves, I'm going to, you know, let them make these decisions on their own. I don't want to indoctrinate my kids, and I think the ultimate result is that the culture then informs them. And if, they, if you don't teach your children a Christian worldview, they ultimately will be instructed by the culture, which changes every 45 minutes. It's the shifting <laughs> sand, and, they, and, and most adults will say they don't embrace all of their culture. Like, you want your kid to be raised by that. That's a good point, Kim. And Mike, do you have a point? Well, I was just going to make a comment, John, with regard to authority. And, you know, a week ago, not only were some of us, well, Mark, specifically praying mightily for the Eagles, but they actually won. And the best part of that whole game was really, in my opinion, what happened immediately after the game when they, the first three people that were given a microphone on the national stage said, I'd like to thank God. I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior. And the fact that they did that in that setting, weren't talking about Disney World, weren't even talking about their teammates. They were giving praise and honor to their ultimate authority. And to see that on national television, that's certainly very convicting when we think about our own lives, how many times have we stepped out and done that even in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, let alone in front of you know the free world. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And the quarterback, I mean, this guy has taken courses now in seminary. He says, he, he says, in a sense, he says football is a big deal. I mean, it's his career. It's like, he says, my goal is to be a pastor. 
Am I right, Mark? His goal is to be a pastor. You know, it, it, it's just interesting when somebody reaches the top, so to speak, of what we consider high-level celebrity and famous, to, to, to give praise to God and to say, you know, okay, this is important. We're not going to diminish it, but this is the big picture. It's a good point, Michael. Somebody else had their hand up. Okay. So, yes, please. Oh, the four, uh, now some have more, but number one is origin. How did this all start? Was it a big bang and, it, you, know, it, you know, like an atheist, Dawkins might say that. Or Buddhism says this is all um, uh, illusionary. It's just a mind game, like the matrix. But of course, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam will say, no, it's creation by a creator. And of course, Genesis teaches us it's a very orderly uh, what the man be, man and woman be in the crown of creation, because we're made. So, the, so you have origin, meaning. Does life have meaning? Or, or like so many today, they don't find life has meaning. Am I right? Like almost like an existentialist kind of thing. Uh, and realize we realize we like, you know. And then, then morality. Is it wrong to steal? Is it wrong to have two wives? Is it wrong to do this? Is what? And of course, destiny, which is a big one. Uh, what happens to me when I die? You know, there's basically three answers. I mean, the, the atheist will basically say uh, annihilation or secession of all afterlife. You just, nothing, nothing goes after you die. Uh, Eastern, Buddhist, Hindu will say reincarnation. You acquire so much karmic debt, you've got to work it out, keep coming back on this deal. But again, Orthodox Judaism, Islam, Christianity will say there's a judgment, there's a heaven, there's a hell. So those are your three biggies. Out of, and there could be others, but... The beauty of this is that Christianity offers the best explanation for life, okay? It answers all those four questions in spades. It just does. It says our, our goal in life is to do what? We're put on this earth to do what? Glorify to glorify God. Psalm 43, I think it's verse 7. We're put here to glorify God. We're going to see how we can do that if I have a couple more minutes here. Yeah. Um, uh, meaning, you know, life has high meaning. Morality. Jesus ratchets morality up. You, the law says don't kill, but I say to you, don't even harbor in your heart a grudge or bitterness towards your brother. If somebody insults you, do what? Repay him with kindness. You know, he elevates. And of course, ask destiny. What does is, what is the say in Romans? I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man. What great things God has planned for us. So, like my friend says, Christianity offers you the best explanation. Plus, we got really good songs. No, uh, <laughs> uh, it's true, though. Um, so here he goes through this authority, but now he comes, to, uh, he gives the parable of the two sons. We won't get into that, but for time's sake. But we're going to this parable of the landowner. He says this first, and remember where he is at now. He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple region. It's his last days prior to the crucifixion. And, and he just goes at it here. He says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a... Sound familiar? It's like cut and pasting from Isaiah 5. It just brings it over, brings it fast forward. And of course, he's speaking now. 21 is really about the Jewish nation. You know, the cursing of the fig tree, confronting the religious leadership, and, and, and basically, he's going to move it to the point where he'll look at Jerusalem and say what? Jerusalem? Jerusalem. How I would have gathered together as what? 
A mother hen gathers her ticks, but you would not. Now your house is left to you desolate. That's Isaiah language. Do you understand? Predicting a woe or a wrath that's going to fall. That's really a gift when somebody warns you that something is going to happen. Because you can, you can, you can take that and make the right adjustments. In this case, repent. But no, they're going to go along and, and, the, and, the, and the wrath is going to fall. 30 years. At least, you know, Isaiah is 150 years before the wrath of God falls on, on the southern kingdom. Jesus, 30, 30 years after he ascends to heaven when the Romans come in and scorch earth. Scorched earth. Uh, Josephus writes about it. Other uh, non-Christian writers write about what happens to Jerusalem and Israel. Okay. So he says, okay, very similar to Isaiah 5. Then he says, now, um, when the vintage time drew near... He sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Looking for what? Return on investment. You know, that I expect him. And the vine dresser took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent another servant more than the first, and they did like. Who, who are in this parable? Who are the servants that he's sending? The prophets. The prophets. Okay? And they're killing them or they're imprisoning them. Why? They don't like the message. They want somebody that, what does it say? Prophesy us unto smooth things. Tell us happy things. Tell us this, you know, don't tell us hard things. Don't tell us we have to repent. Don't tell us our ways are immoral. Don't tell us. They cannot stop the message because the message is based on God's word and God's truth. If you can't stop the message, who do you stop? The messenger. You can't stop the message you stop the messenger. And God, in his grace, keeps sending them. If you study the Old Testament, that's what they're doing. Good scholars think that Isaiah was sawn in half. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, that's him that it refers to. But they were stoned. Think of it moving fast forward in the New Testament. John the Baptist, beheaded. Stephen gives one sermon. Great sermon. Stone. Okay. James, the brother of John, run through with a spear or a sword. You see, they continue. It, nothing's changed in a sense. Same thing going on in the world today where the countries and places, they don't want the message getting in. We used to live right next to Myanmar, uh, but some countries are like in lockdown and uh, they can't stop the message, but they can do something with the messengers. Imprison them, kill them, do this. Any thought on this? My good friend here is going to give his testimony, uh, Dr. Habib from Syria. Not today, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Okay, I'm going to give a warning. But, and tell us about what it's like growing up in the, in the culture and in that kind of environment. Um, but that's, that's what's going on here. And Jesus is, is rehearsing to them what's happening. And he, say, he says the same thing to the Pharisees of his day in Luke 11 and other places. He says, he says you're like whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dead man's bones. He says, you kill the prophets and then what do you do? Make a monument to them. You make a monument. He says, your fathers did the same thing. You do the same thing. He goes, and he says, they're corrupted. So he says here, they sent, he keeps sending these servants, these prophets. And again, he said, now verse 37. Then last of all, last of all. This is why oftentimes you'll see in the last days, like in Hebrew, when God sends his son Jesus Christ, they say, in the, in the last days he sent forth his son Jesus Christ. You see, it's God's last 
outreach, the culmination of his redemptive plan for man is to send his son. Do you understand? So he says, last of all, he says, he sent his son, for God so loved the world, he did, to them, saying, they will respect my son. They will respect my son. Why? Because he's my son. Two, he's fulfilling prophecy. Three, he's validating his authority that he is indeed the king. Uh, if, if somebody declared themselves to be king, or if I said I'm Julius Caesar and Napoleon, you, you, I'd be crazy, right? But if somebody comes and they're declaring themselves the son of God, or the king of kings, and he displays authority by calming a storm, or feeding 5,000 with two loaves and a couple of fishes, or raising the dead, or opening blind eyes of the dead, he constantly is displaying kingly millennial or end time authority as a king. Do you understand what Jesus is doing in that short span of his if I can say earthly reign, it's going to be full-blown at the end of the age when he comes down as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But when he comes, he's displaying it. Even death. He says, nobody takes my life from me. He says, I give it down. I lay it down willingly. I have the power to lay it down and take it up again. See, that's king. That's, that's authority. That's why when people really investigate Jesus, if you're a skeptic or somebody, just look at what he's saying here. You're not getting a prophet or a guru or somebody, you know, teach, making these statements and then backing them up. Yes, Marie. Just uh, uh, on that same note, I noticed that Jehovah Witnesses, that's one of their points, is that Joseph Smith is the last prophet. You mean Mormon? That's, uh, that's apologetic simplified. Okay. Uh, Matthew 25, Jesus says when he goes away, what's going to happen? Many false prophets will come. It was going on in the first and second century. People were leading astray people. They said they were the Christ. They said they were Messiah, leading people out to the desert. It's happening in our day. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, David Brest, Jim Jones, da, 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 Sun Yang Moon. All, it, it's nothing new under the sun. But what we have with the word of God, we can test. Uh, for one thing, Jesus, the, the, on his ascension, the angel stood next to the apostles and says, the same way he went up, what? He's coming down. You see, he's coming. Take the, so, yeah, I mean, the people will claim somebody's a prophet, but it's very easy using the word of God to discern that they're not a prophet, you know. Yes, please, Steve. Uh, a, a man I knew who was a former Jehovah's Witness used mm -hmm. to do this when they would come to his door. They would come to his door, even uh -huh. though they because they didn't know. Sure. And he would say, "Welcome," he says. "I'm glad to see you." And they would say, "Huh?" He say, "Yes." It says in the Bible that false prophets will arise and try to deceive many, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that sounds like a friend of yours. Too. <laughs> I just say, uh, that's good. Okay, uh, back to this. Okay, so he says here, but when the vine dressers saw, they said among themselves, "This is the last." or the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. Who is he speaking this parable to? 
the Jewish people, but in particular where he's located now is in the temple region. Who's he just challenging earlier on in this? In chess? The authorities. What are they doing now behind his back? They're fulfilling this parable he's telling to them as he speaks it. Do you see this? They're conspiring. It's very interesting. It says, so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this idea cast him out of the vineyard in Hebrews 13 of Jesus. It says Jesus was crucified outside the gate. And outside the gate was where the dogs roamed and they threw the trash and they executed. You see, fulfillment, fulfillment of the scriptures in very high detail. Therefore, now he asks a question, just like God asks a question in Isaiah chapter 5. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine dressers? He's basically saying, like in Isaiah 5, what more could the Lord do when he comes now because you did this? What will he do? He's putting the question over to them. And uh, I like verse 41. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus says, have you never read the scripture? Very interesting side point. Study the number of times Jesus says this to an audience that he expects to have read the scripture. Have you never read? Have you never read? It's, it's like an indictment on us, too, that we, that we read and know the scripture. He says, and he quotes from uh, Psalm 118 here. Now, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will be grind him to powder. I like this, verse 45. But when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. That's King James language. They were like cut to the heart. They knew he was speaking about them. So when he says they're going to take it from these guys who weren't faithful in keeping the vineyard, and who is he giving it to? The Gentile. In other words, now it's going to go to the Gentile people, by and large, although the early church is, is Jewish predominantly, at least 1 through 15 in the book of Acts. But there's this idea, this, this transference. John chapter 1 says what? He came to his own, and his own received him not. I'm talking nationally, because many Jewish people did receive him. We know that even on the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 that came to faith. So then it says... Um, uh, now they want to kill him. It says in verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because he, they took him for a prophet. So you see what Jesus is doing in this one parable. He's giving you a sweep of Jewish history. He's giving us a sweep of Jewish history and how they didn't really want to hear God's word, God's word. Although there was always a remnant that did, don't get me wrong. But and then when God's ultimate revelation came to them, you know, he comes and presents his credentials. They don't want him. They don't want him. And the people will shout out uh, when, when Herod says, uh, Pilate says, uh, do, do you not want to receive your king? Do you not want it? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man reign over us. You see what I'm saying? That's, it's, and a similar thing is going on today. I want to be my own man. I want to be mine. I want to be free. I want to be, you know, do we want him reigning over us? That, that's the safest place to be. Our Father who art in heaven, hell be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. You know, we want to bring that. We come under his lordship, not just as savior, but as Lord. And we'll get into that as we study Isaiah. So then, um, there's a lot here we could get into, but it's the idea, he's going to 
he's going to give it to another nation. And of course, in Peter and in Romans, Christians are described as what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yeah, we're, you know, we might have citizenship here, Westlake, Bay Village, Parma, whatever. But our real, we have dual citizenship, really. Our citizenship is in heaven, you understand? Our names are written in the books. We're citizens of heaven as well as locally here. We, we are a holy nation. We are a, any comment on any of this? I'll, I'll start bringing it up. Now, there it takes it to 30 AD or 32 AD. Now, fast forward with this vineyard analogy to us now, because we've been given this inheritance, given this responsibility, and look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And again, the vineyard uh, metaphor is in use here. Now, when you study John, I mean, yeah. John is built around, outlined with the seven I am statements of Jesus. This will be his last I am statement. I am the true vine. It's also structured around seven signs, which are miracles. He John says, I could have wrote a lot more, but I wrote these specifically. It's outlined in a certain fashion. But if you look at from chapter um, 13, certainly 14, 15, 16, 17, you'll notice something. It's all red letter. It's all red letter. He's now not preaching to the multitudes. He's not out. He's with his, his followers here, the select group. This is like inside information. This is like he's given it now because he's going to be departing shortly. So he gives them high, what I call high content, especially when he prays for them at the end in chapter 17. It's just powerful. But here he says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's very consistent uh, with what he just said in uh, Matthew 21. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now look at, you see this, this, this progression. Uh, no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and we're going to get down to much fruit later in this very parable, but it's like a progression of growth here. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What does that tell you? What, what does that say to you in your own words, verse 3? It's like a very important statement. You're saved, but you are clean. You are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. What does he mean by that? Pardon me? Yeah, but he's, he's, he's not necessarily speaking about him being the, the logos here. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken. So it's, he's talking verbal. Yo. He's told us what's going to happen. He's told us what's going to happen, but in, in John chapter 17, verse 7, he, he says to his father, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Then he says something very important. Thy word is truth. The Word of God has a purifying effect on us as we read it and apply it and obey it. That's why the psalmist will say, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. It talks in Ephesians, with husbands and wives, that they're cleansed by the washing of water by the Word. See, the Word of God, really, the Word of God can keep us from sin, or if we stay away from the Word of God, we go into sin. It has a purifying effect. It really does. I mean, this is... I don't want to elaborate on this too much, but when you're reading the Word of God, the Word of God is reading us. You know, it convicts, it encourages, it, it, it illuminates, it does. So he's saying here, 
Uh, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now he starts, I think this is 11 times this word abide is used in this chapter. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, now it says what? Bears much fruit. See, it goes no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. You'll often see this kind of progression when you're dealing with spiritual growth. You remember when he says, when the good seed falls into the ground and takes root, it produces fruit, what? 30, 60, 100 fold, okay? Newborn babes in, in, in the Lord, Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, just like my grandson is right now. This, but then as you get older, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, I wanted to give you strong meat, word of God, but you can't handle it. Do you understand progression? And that's rather consistent in scripture. Uh, these are like side topics. I don't know. Maybe we'll do it in the fall. Okay. I don't know. Um, so he says, then he says, verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather. You have people that are, are professors, but not possessors of life. They, you know, he gives the, I don't want to get into this too much, but remember the parable of the weeds and the tares? Weeds and tares, something about that is they look similar. But they're very different. And so there's people that will say they're believers or following Jesus or even that they're Christian, but they're not. Think of Judas. He was with them, he's alongside them, he's going to, but he was not. He was cast out. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wasn't attached. He wasn't attached to this abiding life. This is your working definition of a Christian. It says in Romans, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're none of his. You understand? It's not about religion. It's about that relationship. That's why it'll say in John chapter 3, he that hath the Son has life. He that does not have the Son, what? Does not have life, but the wrath of God abideth upon that person. It's really, the way the scripture show it, it's very stark. You know, it's, it's very clear. Any thoughts on this? I'm going to start wrapping this up. Okay, so he says, abide in me. And then now he says this, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. As my Father loved me, so I love you. He says, keep my commandments and abide in my love, my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, I'll close with this. What, what is his command to us? What, what's the, what are we supposed to do? Abide means what? Does anybody have another translation of abide? Remain. Remain. See, a servant goes to the house, but he leaves the house. A servant goes to the house. But a son or a daughter stays in the house, right? He abides in the house. To abide is to stay, to remain. Uh, so we abide in it. What else do we have to do? Stand fast. All right? Stand fast. Does he say stand fast? Well, okay, that's it. Okay. Ask. That's a good one. Ask, which implies pray. Okay, this is going to be one of the benefits, of one of the results of the fruits, and that's what? He says, if you'll do the, he says, abide with him, what else? There's something else very important there. Be fruitful. If you abide in me and my words, that's it. Do you understand? 
that my words, meaning what? Scripture. The scriptures. My words are with are in you. You, you know, you, we're, 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 we're scriptural people. You know, we're Bible people. You understand what I'm saying? Get the word of God. Memorize, meditate, learn it, read it, teach it. Okay. This, this is abide with him. It's personal, and then it's our responsibility. Either we're in the word or we're not in the word. It's just what it is. We make an effort to. And one of the things about uh, the age we live in of information is the number of books out there. Good books. Don't get me wrong. I really like books. But a lot of good books can take us away from the best book. There's no other book in the world that it says it's living, it's eternal, it's effectual, it, it's not. It's, it's going to outlast the solar system. Heaven and earth will pass away. You understand what I'm saying? The idea of coming back to the Word. That's why I liked our sermon series last year with Nehemiah and Ezra. Remember, they discovered the scrolls. They go, oh, and the people stand up all day long. They read the description. We have to rediscover the scrolls. Okay. Um, now, if we do this, what's, what's some of the benefits or the results? Joy. Joy. How important is it to have joy today in a joyless world? You know, you ever meet a person that's really joyful? If there's something attractive about that quality. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but there's something about that. Find somebody that's truly peaceful or has real purpose in their life. That's a tremendous point of uh, contact to share why you have that joy, why you have that peace. Okay, joy. That That's his joy. That's not the joy the world gives us. What else? To bear fruit. Okay, well, bear fruit. What would my fruit be? When he says bear fruit, we as vines, if we're fruit bearers, what fruit are we bearing? Believers attract believers. Pardon me? Attract believers. You mean attract believers or attract non-believers? Attract non-believers. Oh, okay, that's cool. To be, to be no, it's good to attract believers, especially if you're single. But you're right. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is one of the manifestations of abiding in Christ and His Word abiding in us. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. All of these things is a manifestation of our inner life. They're an exterior manifestation of what's happening in inner, inner, inner being. They're Christ-like, if you will. They're almost like Christ-like personality traits. And to your point, you make a good point. That's attractive to somebody. You know, uh, I, I, you, the world we live in is just... So chaotic and people lack joy, they lack peace. And when they see somebody that has it, they often say, why do you have that? Am I right? Why are you peaceful? You're going through a very difficult situation here. How can you have this peace? You just went through a difficult period, the loss of a loved one. How do you, how do you maintain a certain purpose or a higher kind of a viewpoint? And we have a point to share. Always remember, fruit is not meant for the tree that bears it. Okay? An apple, a banana. It's, for others, it's for other living creatures to come. But contained within every piece of fruit is what? Speed. That's where we share the gospel. So my old friend used to say, you can count the number of apples on an apple tree, but you cannot count the number of apple trees in an apple. Okay, what else? Joy. <coughs> what is it? You obey. Yeah, we have to obey. That up here. Do obey, obey. But we're going to have joy. He promised something else. Tim, you touched up. Huh? Love, okay. Love, uh, again, fruits of the Holy Spirit for love. What does that mean when it says, if you abide in me and my words, what you ask, I will answer. What 
What does that suggest to you? Not just prayer, but what? Answer is the prayer. How many in this, in this room, if we're really honest, when you really have a diabetes, you call certain people because you know they get through. That's like the you know, you're the color. <laughs> you know, yeah, right? But I mean, it's just the, we can have a victorious, effectual, powerful prayer and intercession if we do that. that that's a very important thing. I never know a Buddhist or an atheist that I've had contact with or a Muslim that would refuse prayer when they were at a point of need. If you ask permission first, say, can I pray about this? Can I pray about this? You've been out of work six months before you pray. And if they say, yeah, what you want to say to them after you pray, you come back and tell me if you see an answer to prayer. Okay, so this idea of an effectual prayer life, that's important because if we're close to Christ and his word abides in us, we're going to feel the heart to, to, to pray, to be prayers, to intercede for others, to stand in the gap. See what I'm saying? And to see answers to those prayers. I said before, in ancient times, they used to have this kind of a flywheel kind of an illustration or a mill. They said the more you pray, the more answers to prayer you see. The more answers to prayers you see, the more you will pray. The more you pray, the more it's more like that. But if we if we don't pray much and our prayer life is weak, we don't tend to see many answers to prayer. If we don't see many answers to prayer, what? We decrease our prayer. When you feel weak in prayer, get with people that pray. Okay, what else? Prayer life, is there anything else he says? Benefits or results? He says, I will call you what? I will call you what? In that passage. Disciple. disciple. How many want to be called a disciple? Are all believers disciples? I'm not going to answer that today. Jesus did not go say, go make converts. He said, go make disciples. Okay? <laughs> There's a lot implied in that. So he says, I will call you my disciple. Is there any other thing that we're going to see if we do that? There's one other thing. We'll end on this. What's man's chief goal in life? What does he say there? This is to my Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory. You'll glorify God if you do this because you're going to bear much fruit. That is the ultimate. So when you take this, starting back here with this vineyard, well, the people that were not glorifying God, they're actually going the other direction, swinging fast forward, 700 years to the time of Jesus when he's using this vineyard, says it's going to be given to another. We are the other vineyard keeper, so to speak, coming to us, and we should know what to do that we can apply the vineyard application to our lives. Any closing thoughts on this? Does that make sense? You can preach this. I mean, this is tough. When you see it happening back there, you see it at the time of Christ, and it has application right here, right now, this morning. That's the Word of God. That's, that's, it's timeless. It's timeless. Okay, any closing thoughts? All right, who would like to close us then in a word of prayer? See inside that, what's that, Mary? Oh, let's, do you want to announce? Um, this is your reminder, so for next Sunday, uh, Cynthia Curses, I thought I saw you here. Pardon me? Uh, that's going to be fruit. And then um, Hillary Kitchen, I saw you here too. So you're a team of And we really appreciate this because, again, now that we're really stressing small group and interaction, and uh, this isn't a real small group, but I mean, I can, we can get a small group feel to it. Part of it is, is food, you know. Jesus says, 
Jesus says he'll make you fishers of men. Sometimes you have to use the right bait. <laughs> um, Michael, would you close us in a word for a thing?